Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And the Manus Recording Project is a new initiative giving intimate access to the daily routines of six men currently being held in hotels or detention centres in Port Moresby, Melbourne and Brisbane. Each day this month, subscribers receive a text message with a 10-minute audio piece recorded by one of the participants, each of them who were originally transferred to Manus Island after seeking asylum by boat in Australia. Journalist Michael Green is one of the people behind the project and Farhad Ramati is one of the participants and we're very pleased to have them both joining us via Skype and via phone. Thanks so much for being there. Thanks for having us. Good morning. And Farhad, when you were first approached to participate in this particular project, how did you go about deciding how you wanted to represent your current situation and surroundings? Uh, Good morning to you and your lovely audience. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, Michael contacted me and asked to uh, be a part of this project, and I had a bit of time to think about it, and I thought this is a very interesting, actually, topic that we could uh, let people to live with us in this situation by hearing our uh, hearing the voice around uh, around us but uh, i just wanted to uh, passively let them know while you are having your life your daily life and hearing us in different days uh, still we are in a same situation and uh, whether it doesn't matter where we are either in Papua New Guinea or in uh, Melbourne detention or here in Brisbane, doesn't matter. We have all one thing in common, which is indefinite detention. So that was the the main point that I started uh, participating in this uh, project. And it's the 17th of August, Farhad, and so we're 17 days into this project. What are the kinds of recordings that you've chosen to share? Well, I I think I had three recordings so far, and uh, one of them was uh, uh, played yesterday, which was just 10 minutes of my gym time while I'm trying to uh, doing my daily workout. And at the same time, this is happening to me every single day because that's the time that uh, I think about what's going to happen in future and uh, I realize the hope is still alive for me while I'm doing exercise uh, to be healthy and ready for my future. And the other recording was uh, during a time that I, uh, every every day at the evening, I just sit um, next to the uh, high uh, security fences around uh, Baita and listen to the birds uh, around this place and just reminds me of my back home and my it brings up some memories from home. 
yeah, that's pretty what I have done. Yeah, and I think we could even just hear a couple of birds there. I'm not sure if you're in that space now, Farhad, but it's it's really interesting. That was the first of your pieces that I listened to over the weekend. And when I first read about this project, I kind of imagined it might be detainees um, maybe recording a bit of a monologue about their situation and, and their circumstances, but it was really resonant um, being able to listen to something that you've heard kind of on you know, the evenings you go out and sit by the fence and listen to birds. Was it a really deliberate uh, approach for you to not necessarily talk um, for some of your contributions, but to just record and just encourage people to listen to what, what you hear and, and what you encounter in your daily surroundings? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, this situation, uh, when I record without talking in my recording, it talks louder because I, I let uh, the audience to to uh, find themselves and feel themselves in in, a, in this situation that I, I have been trapped in, and uh, I think that's a very powerful message uh, to let people feel feel our our frustration and our pain, uh, which is being around us for seven years. And we're speaking about the Where Are You Now project um, from the Manus Recording Project Collective. And Michael Green, um, what was the impetus, I suppose, to establish this particular approach to, to sharing stories? Uh, well, it's actually the second iteration of the of the project. We, we um, did a version of it which was called Where... Um, how are you today? Which was uh, two years ago as part of the eavesdropping exhibition put on by Liquid Architecture um, at the Potter Gallery Museum of Art in Melbourne. Um, and at that time, it was a similar sort of project, but the 10-minute um, recordings, the guys were all on Manus at that time, um, and, and the recordings were played in a, in a gallery setting. Um, we th thought that it would be good to um, work with a similar concept again and also to respond to the the present moment. Um, the guys, uh, some of the guys have been um, transported off Manus and they're now living either in hotels or in detention centres in Australia. Some are in um, hotels in Port Moresby. Um, and also we've, we've, you know, the rest of us have found ourselves um, trying to deal with the situation um, that we're in now with the confinement um, or the experience of, of some kind of confinement with, with the coronavirus. Um, so galleries aren't open. Um, but we, we thought that uh, we could send recordings every day to people's phones and also establish a, a really direct relationship. When you listen back to the recordings, it tells you how far how far away you are in kilometres and how many um, hours it has been since the person made that recording. I was wondering um, um, how important that was to the project. Well, um, I think it's, it is really important because as you listen, you, you not only hear those sounds, but you, um, it's a very direct connection between you, the one person listening in your home, um, and the place and the time where that person was, where Farhad was when he was um, recording himself um, working out and thinking about his future. And so a lot of what happens, and as Farhad kind of alluded to, when you listen to these recordings is that you have 10 minutes, you know, to sit with that person and and to think about what it means, um, what their life's like, what yours is like in relation to them, the time that's passed for them since they've been um, incarcerated by the Australian government.
Yeah, and um, I think, Farhad, you, uh, you're quite a distance from me um, based here in, in the inner north in Melbourne. I think uh, 1,378 kilometres is, is the current distance from us um, today. And I, I received your latest recording this morning. But I wonder, um, do you plan to make any more contributions to this particular project? And if so, what type of um, approach do you, do you um, plan to take in those? Well, definitely, I, w- I would be uh, more than happy to participate in this project or uh, any kind of similar project to uh, to let people feel our our life when they have their daily life, and I want them to uh, understand that uh, while you are, as I said, while you are having your daily life, still we are stuck in this situation, and still we have hope that uh, new people might feel us, hear us and demand some justice into uh into our life uh that's that's my my goal actually yeah and given the real diversity of approaches that have been taken michael what was the brief when you were working with um these men was there any particular direction or was it just submit a 10-minute recording and it can be anything uh well so um we kind of chat um with uh, the guys about what what their life's like, what things they're doing in their day, um, and uh, what might make some interesting sounds. Um, uh, Some people uh, are sort of directly addressing the listeners. Some people are using a bit of a mix of of talking directly. Um, It it is kind of interesting because, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing journalistic projects um, about um, immigration detention. Um, And this kind of more um, artistic approach is really interesting because the sounds that people make are not necessarily predictable um, and they can be moving in different ways. Like um, there was a a recording of one of the guys, Danush, did of him um, listening to a guided meditation, which is particularly moving. Mm. Um, And... um, Another thing that's kind of interesting is, like um, Farhad working out, or another guy um, did a record. Um, uh, Yassin did a recording of himself at the gym, and you could really get a sense of his body, um, yeah. and and not just him as a, you know, a, a, a suffering object of um, pity. You know, like mm. him as a real physical being in the world, and and the kind of cost of him being locked up this time so what we want to do is try to capture is like chat with the guys who are involved um about the sounds of their life um in in various ways uh, that so that the listeners can kind of understand them as a as a being uh, you know who's living and breathing and um doing things that you might not necessarily expect. Yeah, and I, I think, um, I mean, I was listening to one of the recordings and from um, another Fahad who's part of the project and um, just seven kilometres away from where I was listening and we're pretty aware at the moment of how far away things are from our houses because we're restricted, aren't we, to, to sort of five mm. kilometres unless there's a really good reason. So I'm thinking just on the other side of that line, this is being recorded and mm. and. I was really interested in what you said, Michael, about it um, you know, being similar to something you've run in a, an exhibition space because it feels that way. It feels like you're making time and you're taking time to listen and absorb. It's not sort of, you know, 
infotainment in the sense of like a podcast or a radio broadcast where it's pacey and there's no space. Um, and I think that, I mean, are you getting feedback from, from the participants in this project about how it's connecting with them? Um, well, so listeners are definitely finding it um, quite compelling. We've got a lot of people subscribing. Um, hopefully, we'll yeah give people the, your listeners a, a bit of a heads up about how to subscribe. But oh, yeah, we can do um, that. <laughs> been several more um, hundreds more than we had expected, um, and I think people are finding it a kind of quite meditative experience to listen along and to share that those 10 minutes with um the people in detention it's just such a different way of relating to um to people like Farhad than we normally get a chance to do and I was kind of I was listening to Farhad's one again this morning and and I think almost one of my favorite parts of the of the record of each recording is the moment when it finishes and it just cuts yeah. out after 10 minutes and then, but actually it carries on in my mind. Like I, I continue to listen along or imagine what I had continued to do in that space afterwards. Um, I think that's kind of a powerful part of it, the way it takes you with them. I agree. And it's, it says something interesting about the way we listen these days. You know, we tend to listen through headphones or earbuds often while we're doing other things. It's very different listening to these stories um, as part of our sort of daily routines. I mean, I've listened as part of a run to, to your piece, Farhad, as I was um, was walking along listening to the real sounds of birds. And there was all this almost this kind of echo listening to your piece um, alongside those birds in the actual environment. But also, I was listening to one last night as I was cooking dinner where they were talking about getting a haircut and the process of getting a haircut. And you just kind of, in your time and place, you can then relate to somebody else in a different time of place that, that was going through this particular experience. And I think it has a great deal of resonance in that way. But, I mean, Fahad, we're getting this opportunity to kind of speak to you about what we've got out of the project. Are you getting much feedback from listeners and those who have signed up to this relaying um, their particular listening experience and what they've got out of it at all? Yeah, definitely. Very interesting. I was going to talk about this and, and suddenly you asked about it. I, I received uh, plenty of messages from lovely people out there uh, about this project. And uh, it's interesting that this project made a direct connection between our life and uh, outside life uh, during given this uh, situation, especially in Melbourne, that people are somehow isolated and now they have a better understanding from our life uh, in past seven years. I know this is a very unfortunate situation and I uh, really, I'm really sorry for what's happening uh, around the world, especially in Melbourne. The situation is really uh, very bad. And uh, yeah, this, this project made a really interesting connection between us and people uh, and uh, I'm receiving heaps of messages, uh, if not daily, but weekly. Uh, people are making connection with with us, and they they really uh, they are really happy for this project. And uh, I'm receiving feedbacks that uh, this project made made a better understanding from our life, uh, and people are uh, feel more connected with us. 
Well, who knows, you might be getting some more feedback after this conversation, Farhad, because we're going to give out the contact details for those that want to kind of join in um, with this project. It's called Where Are You Today? It's out of the Manus Recording Project and you can, uh, the details are manusrecordingproject.com and you can head there and you can subscribe and you're going to get text messages and um, maybe Michael, um, tell us a little bit more if um, you might have some more details, but you get text messages and you can each day and you can listen to them and it's going to run until the end of this month. ManusRecordingProject.com. Thank you so much both for joining us today. It's been really fantastic and uh, yeah, congratulations for really, I suppose, expanding our experiences too of, of, of being in this period to allow us into your, into your lives. Um, thanks, Farhad. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, Michael Green um, is uh, one of those behind the initiative, um, a journalist, and I think has done some really important and interesting projects over recent years as well. Um, Farhad Ramati was our guest. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And Auckland is back in lockdown as the country tries to get on top of a small cluster of infections there. New Zealand's been incredibly successful, as we know, in its quest to eliminate the virus, which uh, only adds to the Jacinta factor in the lead-up to the country's election. The New Zealand PM reigns large in the polls. Um, and the election that was announced this morning is going to be pushed back a month. Um, we thought it'd be a good time to have a chat with um, Grant Duncan. He's with Mass University. He's associated Professor for the School of People, Environment and Planning, and uh, welcome to Melbourne, Grant. Hi, and nice to be here. Yeah, and hope you're taking care in New Zealand. Yeah, um, I <laughs> yeah well, we're under lockdown, we're doing our best in two cousins in Melbourne. Yeah, I know. We'll say we're um, one lockdown city to another. And I mean, yeah, yeah. a difference is that we um, we don't have the Jacinta factor here in Australia, but we do. <laughs> um, and we're not actually going to the national polls anytime soon. But it was announced this morning that your poll, which is June last month, um, sorry, next month, is being pushed back until October, I understand. Yes, pushed back by about one month to the 17th of October. And so what's the, the rationale for that, Grant? Well, there's the uh, concern that uh, voters will be feeling unsafe about going out to the polls uh, because we are under lockdown. The trouble with that, of course, is that we can't predict that on the 17th of October things will be any better or worse. But uh, the real concern, I think, is essentially a political one, is that particularly the opposition parties want to buy for time. And also they are actually quite reasonably saying that it is, it is actually restricting their ability to campaign out in the open, you know, uh, knocking on doors or, or having meetings, particularly in Auckland, where there's a stricter lockdown. And so I guess in that context, Jacinda Ardern has been doing quite well in the polls, I understand. So is this announcement to push back the election a month, uh, kind of, is there a political factor to this, that there's some people who might look favourably upon her for taking some of those concerns on board, or, or are there sort of legitimate questions around whether having it next month would actually be feasible? Well, the Electoral Commission is very confident that they can feasibly carry out the election, even if things you know, do get a little bit difficult with another outbreak. But uh, they do have you know, the legal ability to uh, make some adjournment to voting if necessary. But then it becomes 
in the hands of the Electoral Commission, not the uh, Prime Minister. But yes, uh, in terms of uh, how this works out politically, uh, I think uh, Jacinda Ardern was definitely under pressure to make the change. And in making it, I don't think it's a sign of weakness, but it certainly helps forestall a lot of the accusations that were arising that we couldn't have a free and fair election under these conditions, particularly around the restrictions of the campaigning. And also the opposition parties want to buy a little bit of time so that they can chip away at the government's support. That works. We'll just have to wait and see. Mm. And I mean, it might be useful for those that don't follow New Zealand politics as closely as others to sort of describe um, the the situation there in New Zealand. So Jacinda Ardern is Labour. She's in coalition, I understand, and the Nationals has a new leader. Is that kind of um, part yep. of the picture there? Yes, that's true. So uh, National, after a couple of leadership changes, has settled on Judith Collins. Uh, she's 61. She's a very experienced politician, former cabinet minister, uh, known for being quite tough. Uh, and she'll be taking uh, quite an aggressive approach, I think, to the uh, election debates in relation to Jacinda. And uh, I think Australian listeners are probably familiar with Jacinda Ardern. Uh, and the Labour Party has been, in recent polls, uh, polling somewhere between 50 and 60 percent, uh, enough to, uh, if those numbers hold up at the election, uh, enough to deliver a single party majority in the parliament. And we know that crises, when they are handled well or when a leader is perceived to be handling a crisis well, that can work for them politically. But I guess taking a bit of a broader view over the past few years, I mean, we know here in Australia, Jacinda Ardern is quite a popular figure. Has she had sort of broad support across the past few years or is this support that she seems to be attracting now partly a result of the way that New Zealand has managed the pandemic? Oh, yeah, really good point. Yes, certainly the pandemic has led to a, a significant boost in Labour's opinion polling. So at the beginning of this year, actually, the National Party was polling higher than Labour. And um, at the beginning of 2020, before we'd heard about this uh, COVID pandemic, I was thinking, gee, uh, you know, New Zealanders might vote Jacinda out of office. What would the rest of the world think of that? <laughs> um, but the yes, yeah, certainly you can just you can see clearly that the the polls have led to a boost for Labour and uh, National, uh, alarming for them, uh, going under thirty percent. Yeah, that seems a lot lower. Mm. <laughs> Grant Duncan's with us. <laughs> He's associate professor for um, for the School of People, Environment and Planning over at Massey University and touching base about uh, New Zealand going to the polls. Um, they're going a, a month later than was expected because of the, um, the small number of infections in Auckland, which has sent them back into lockdown. And I, I've been um, reading an article that you posted on the conversation, Grant, uh, around mm. how you vote when you've got this kind of Risk, um, infection risk existing in your population. I suppose we've got it a bit worse here in in Australia, but we're not going to the polls. I think Queensland is um, about the same time as New Zealand is now. And you had some really great ideas, I thought, in your piece around how you might protect citizens and and deal with some of the issues. Of course, there's po- you know postal voting, but um, you're also talking about um, drive through. Voting, which yeah, um, maybe yeah. you know, are, are there sort of a whole lot of solutions being put out there about how this next election in New Zealand could be different, or or is this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us what well, it, look, what I, those I, ideas are. Yeah. I have a lot of 
confidence in our electoral commission, actually. I mean, they are planning for, have been planning for some time for an election under at least a lower level of lockdown. But, you know, I guess my fundamental point was that even when we were under the strictest lockdown here in Auckland, uh, I could leave my apartment and I could go to the supermarket. And the supermarket was letting in people, goodness knows what they might have been carrying. Uh, but basically, it could be done safely. It was required a bit of organisation and some patience and uh, queuing and so forth. But I think if we have, uh, first of all, we have a two-week period, including early uh, polling. So people can go to polling booths early. Uh, if you ask people to queue, if you only allow so many people inside at once, Above all, I think if people take their own pens or if the Electoral Commission hands out individual pens so you're not sharing pens. Um, and, the, and I think if the officials are behind perspex and everyone wears masks inside the polling booth, hand sanitizer, all of those sorts of provisions, we can do it safely. Now, for people who are immunocompromised and really don't want to or they're disabled, can't leave home, the Electoral Commission has always had systems in place for taking the, the voting papers to the person rather than the person having to come in and vote. So, look, I, I, I'm personally really confident that a, 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 an election conducted well uh, under lockdown is possible. South Korea did it. They got a higher than usual turnout. So I think some of the scaremongering that's been coming from political parties, that oh, low turnout and so on, I, I just think we need to put that into perspective and say, hey, look, Let's be practical. We can do this. Well, you're not hearing much in New about New Zealand about um, making the postal service go slow. We're hearing those rumours in other countries. But anyway, sorry, yeah. Dylan, you were going to no, say something. One particular country that comes to mind, absolutely. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, but, yeah we don't want to go down that track. No, and I, I hope you don't. Um, but I guess yeah. in terms of you mentioned voter turnout and, and um, Australian listeners might not necessarily know that it's not compulsory to vote in New Zealand, though it is compulsory to that's register. True. That's true. Or, it's not compulsory, yeah. Yeah, so I guess what sort of efforts are being taken to maximise voter turnout? I mean, is that a really important consideration in the um, the Electoral Commission over there in, in trying to encourage people to get out and vote? Oh, absolutely. And uh, voter turnout hit a low in the 2011 election over here, and there was a lot of concern. That, uh, the last two elections, it's climbed a little bit. Uh, and I think actually we'll get a high turnout this time around, particularly because we have two referendums, one on the legalisation of cannabis and one on euthanasia, uh, alongside this general election. So I think people will want to come out and vote. I, I think people, as I say, they've been confident enough to, to get outdoors, even under the strictest lockdown. Uh, I think that uh, it can be done. And I don't necessarily buy the, the, the buy into the fear that there will be a reduction in turnout. But yeah, overall, over the last you know several years, there's been general concerns about lower voter turnout, particularly among young people, uh, uh, people with lower incomes, and, and ethnic minorities. And so it's a genuine concern. And I think that the I have a, I have a lot of time for our election, the electoral commission. They really do do their best to make it easy for people to vote and to encourage them to turn out. Can I ask something about um, the the referendum that, that um, the oh. referendums um, that run alongside this? I mean, has there been the ability to canvass the issues that might be of interest to people around cannabis and euthanasia alongside all of the other discussion around COVID nineteen and the like? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of issues to think about at the moment, aren't there? Um, 
my personal impression is that we've been debating this, these questions of legalisation and control of cannabis and um, assisted dying or euthanasia for quite some time. So with the euthanasia one, for instance, there's already an act of parliament that's been passed through the parliament and the referendum simply gives it the tick and says it can come into force. So voters are able to see very clearly what they're, able, what they're actually voting for. It's, it's you know, done in writing with the, uh, the, the cannabis referendum says that gives Parliament the, uh, requires Parliament to introduce uh, legislation in the next term on cannabis legislation and control. So a lot of people's concerns may be about, well, what kinds of controls and how effective will they be? Um, but we've had, as I say, a pretty good debate about a lot of these issues for a long time. And, and what I'm not noticing, I have to say at the moment, is for instance, I, I was kind of expecting that conservative groups would uh, come out with a very strong campaign to urge us to vote against euthanasia and against cannabis legalisation, but that really hasn't happened so far. So um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of energy being put into campaigning one way or another over those referendums. Mm. And just before we let you go, Grant, I mean, I'm interested in the current situation over there and how generally New Zealanders are feeling about heading in, heading back into some form of lockdown. Because here in Melbourne, we had sort of an easing up of some restrictions um, a little while ago. And then once the numbers really started to spike, we had to really double down and, and go into, um, you know, harsher restrictions than we even experienced the first time around. And there's been a lot of sort of mm. questions asked around, um, you know, economic incentives in terms of whether it's worth shutting down certain industries or making sure that the virus kind of stops spreading and that debate has kind of reached more of a fever pitch I guess more recently than perhaps it did before but as New Zealanders contemplate having to potentially close businesses and and have their movements curtailed uh, once again how are people feeling about that prospect given the success I guess in managing the coronavirus initially? Oh, well, there are all sorts of feelings about it. And I must say, yes, I really feel sympathetic for people who have businesses that have had to close, particularly in Auckland with the stricter lockdown. Uh, but uh, our present government's philosophy, as you probably know, has been, you know, go early, go hard, mm. deal with it, stamp on it, stamp it out, and then you get back to normal all the more quickly. And um, it, as I say, clearly it's, it's controversial over here. And... You know, you hear conspiracy theories and 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 all sorts of things, and other people saying we're not trying hard enough, and then of course uh, speculation and uh, complaints about how it may have come uh, through one of the uh, border quarantine facilities. Uh, we don't know what the source is at the moment, so lots of speculation, controversy, a lot of it very unhelpful, I have to say. But yeah, admittedly, you know, I feel really sympathetic for the local cafe owners, for instance, who at the moment are really only allowed to sell takeaways at their doors. Uh, they can't allow people to come in and sit down, hugely affecting their businesses. So uh, it's really, really, really difficult choices. Uh, Jacinda Ardern's philosophy has been if we go in early and we go in hard, then we yes, it's going to cost, but the cost will be less in the long run. Now, um, we have to wait and see <laughs> what the long-run consequences are going to be, but that's been the approach over here. So... As soon as there were four cases reported in the community, we were within 24 hours under lockdown again. It was very, very, very swift, and there was no messing around. People weren't happy, 
but a lot of people that I heard were um, just resigned. You know, they were saying, well, we, this is what we have to do to get through. Uh, this, as I say, can't, this doesn't apply to everyone in this country, mm. of course, but um, there's a fair degree of acceptance and confidence that, yes, it hurts, but this is what we have to do to get through. Let's just do it. Well, um, all the best, and um, hopefully the, the result is um, a good one for New Zealand, um, um, both with the the infection numbers, but also with the election. All the best, and thanks for speaking with us on Triple R. Thank you very much, and, and best wishes to people in Melbourne. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, we're here. We're here in um, here in the pain um, of, of lockdown, yeah. and um, I suppose yeah. we're just learning from each other, aren't we? By the sounds, there, um, there are conversations going back and forth. Grant Duncan, um, associate professor for the School of People, Environment, and Planning over at Massey University in Auckland, and um, interesting to hear a perspective there as they head to the polls. Triple. More than ever, policy announcements, big and small, are made and then there's little time for scrutiny, which feels like the case for an announcement about potential new measures affecting the way we fund university students. Um, Education Minister Dan Tien last week said students who fail more than half of their first eight subjects will no longer receive a government subsidised place and help loan. Uh, To speak more about this, but also about the higher education sector in general, which seems to be reeling from one crisis to the next, Peter Hurley is back. He is Education Policy Fellow at the Mitchell Institute, and it's um, great to have you with us, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. And on the surface, it seems like this measure announced by the Minister is harsh on failing students, but is there more to it than that, do you think? I, mean, I suppose it's not in anyone's interest for students to be accruing debt for courses they're failing. What do you see as the rationale behind this kind of measure? I think it's um, look, this has been an issue that's been raised for quite some time, actually. Um, attrition is a problem, um, and it has been raised before, and I think it is worthy of attention. So, I mean, for instance, the Grattan Institute found in, in 2015 that um, of commencing bachelor degree students who attempted at least two subjects in their first year, nearly 6% failed every subject they took. And of those who failed every subject in the first semester, about half dropped out, a quarter failed every subject again, and the rest changed courses or started you know, passing. So for many of these students, it's been speculated that they, they enrolled but never turned up at university in, many, in a meaningful way, never submitted um, assignments, for instance. So I feel as if this is what this policy is, is looking at trying to kind of um, deal with. Um, but, you know, there are a small percentage of students who do fail quite substantially in first year and then go on to pass their degree. Um, and also, I think it's really important to remember, often we forget that it's not just a matter of suitability or academic ability. The group with the highest non-completion rates, my understanding, are females who are studying part-time. And so I think there's circumstances that can make it difficult for this cohort to finish degrees, and it has little to do with the course or the subject matter. And Dan Tien has suggested that universities um, shouldn't and could do a better job of monitoring student progress as part of this, so at-risk students could be identified earlier. But I guess as we're seeing, you know, um, really significant job losses at universities and um, uh, ongoing staff being asked to take on extra loads as well, how viable is it that that sort of monitoring process can be made much more kind of robust to meet those student needs? Universities have really well-established um, policies and procedures to deal with academic progress. 
Um, and I, I, I have read some commentary about this saying that it's actually probably, rather than putting it in the legislation, you're better off leaving it to the universities to manage because there's all sorts of different circumstances that universities are in the best position to, to make a judgment about you know, what's happening with someone and, and why they're having difficulties with the course. In terms of the other part of the question around universities' capabilities at the moment, it's a very difficult time for universities. They are, well, I think they're the same convulsions about what's happening at the moment. Um, they are, uh, they're threatened with huge amounts of um, lost revenue because of international students. And really, really importantly, there's no certainty here. We, we, they don't know when, uh, when the... Uh, um, you know, international students will return and when they might actually get some, uh, some kind of financial security. Yeah, and I was I was thinking um, when reading about this um, measure over the weekend, Peter, that um, you know, well, there was a couple of examples that the minister gave about some students enrolling in heaps of courses, dozens, in fact, and then um, <laughs> accruing these massive debts and and failing, you know, a big portion of the subjects. And I wonder if that's the case. Whether I mean, you know, when you earn money and you you pay tax, um, you have a threshold. Like you you say, oh, this is the job I'm. I'm claiming I'm paying tax on and this is the one I'm doing it differently. I mean, are there other measures that should be looked at as well to prevent some of the kind of real other failures in the system perhaps? Well, maybe, and I think that's, I think that's a good point. But, I mean, that, I think the, there are certainly instances where there are quite extraordinary things happening in terms of, you know, um, students attempting courses that perhaps they shouldn't be. But I think they're also at the margins. And it's really important not to create a policy and put it in legislation that also disadvantages, you know, other people. I think it's what's really, one of the things that's really interesting about this and happening with this government is there's been this real shift away from, say, access and equity um, and onto kind of like, you know, jobs and cost saving and economic return on investment. And I think this issue around, um, you know, completion rates and attrition and how many courses, how many units you fail, kind of is, is part of that wider move. Governments want, this government in particular, wants a return on investment in their education when they invest in education. Um, and, and that's pretty much the whole kind of policy direction that's coming with all these kind of higher education reforms. And we know, I mean, you've written about this, the, the nature of the financial hit that universities are really experiencing as a result of the pandemic is really substantial and will go on for quite some time. And we also saw at the kind of beginning of Australia's pandemic experience where universities were excluded from accessing JobKeeper, which further kind of put an impetus on, on them potentially to cut down on staff and, and all that sort of thing. But through this announcement in relation to the HEX um, uh, being... Hex Help loans being withdrawn from students. Withdrawn from students. Is it possible that universities will therefore potentially experience a drop in revenue, given that governments kind of subsidise their place in universities? That in some cases, if students are not withdrawing before the census date, but not actually completing their studies, that money is then going to the universities in the first instance. Yeah, and universities probably will have a, a small drop in, uh, in in revenue if, if that was the case. But I think, I mean, in, on the scale of things, um, what they it's quite small. Hmm. compared to the kind of revenue issues that they're facing, particularly with international students. The international student market has been part of the university system and the way that we run universities for over 30 years as a supplement to, to um, uh, domestic students. The amount of money that a university receives for a domestic student really hasn't increased in the past 10 years. It's been pretty static. Whereas the amount of money an inter uh, a university receives for an international student has increased by about 150% or something. Or maybe it's about 60%. I can't, don't quite know the figures. But basically, there are, there are more international students and universities are able to charge them more. Now, 
what's happened here is not just a, a fall, but a complete collapse in the international student revenue market. And I think it was about $9 billion, um, over 40% of their student revenue of all universities, um, of, of the money they get from students come from international students. Um, and what's happening here is that because the international students can't start, um, there's numbers of them that are overseas, that's affecting their pipeline um, in quite a dram dramatic way. So every, every, basically every semester that international students can't enrol, universities overall, we estimate, lose about $1.5 to $2 billion. Um, so these, I mean, it's such a massive problem for them that even these little small things aren't really going to make much of a difference. Yeah, and I mean, do you see it as a fault on, on the part of um, universities that they have become so reliant on international student revenue, or do you see it rather that they haven't really had a choice given the way that sort of higher education policy has been implemented over the past years? I think it's, I mean, it's been part of our approach for universities, as I said, over the past 30 years, is to use international students as a supplement. Um, uh, and, and, and that's fine. Um, and it has worked reasonably reasonably well. I think there has been an over-reliance over in the past, say, five years. Um, and, and universities had dealt with that, and government had dealt with that. And there were you know, talks about, say, moving away from reliance on just certain parts of the market, like China, for instance, and Chinese international students. But no one, no one was expecting this. No one was expecting such a massive, dramatic impact on international student numbers. And I don't think there was any way you could really for it. Yeah, and I, I suppose um, I should remind people we're speaking with our Peter Hurley. He's with the Mitchell Institute and talking all about, really about the higher education sector. It's so important to Australia and to individuals, of course, who are about to perhaps start at university or there at the moment um, and knowing what's going on there. There's a lot of change. Uh, and I suppose, um, Peter, we're hearing uh, a lot of people uh, say that um, COVID-19 is really showing up the fault lines that already existed or that this period of change change, this massive disruption we're seeing because of the virus, is time then to address some of the long-standing issues. But um, as you say, this is, you know, this is actually massive for universities. We're hearing that some international students might start to be able to uh, enter South Australia um, in September, as early as September. What do you know about that? Uh, I, I think that universities have been desperately, desperately trying to get international students to, to come back and enrol. I think there's also, I mean, um, the way that this kind of happened with the pandemic, there were actually over, I think, over 100,000 international students who were enrolled but were unable to actually get into the country, um, particularly Chinese international students because travel bans started in February from China and uh, the semester starts in, in Australia for higher ed, usually at the end of February and early March. So there are actually a large number of international National students who have been called out by this and who are overseas. So I assume those 300 international students are probably students who are who are already enrolled, um, uh, and so they're not actually any any extra. Um, I think it's it's been known that this is a big problem, and if you look at say the COVID plans and everything, international education, international student kind of makes it to that <laughs> makes it to that list because it's it's seen as such a such a massive problem and so important for for so many people. And I mean, I think it's also important to point out that it's not just a university problem. I mean, international students um, uh, are live in large numbers in our in our in our cities. I heard someone say the other day that one in seven young people is an international student in Australia. Um, now, if you haven't got that that huge amount of population in the country, that's going to affect a lot of local communities, a lot of businesses, the economy. Um, so there's a real pressure to try and get international students back and kind of help start this, this, this kind of um, all the benefits that they bring.
Yeah, and we're seeing as well that universities are having to reduce, in some cases, the, the types and the number of courses they offer as a result of a, a drop in international student enrolments and also a significant drop in staff in some cases as well. But as we've seen a really substantial move to online teaching and some really kind of fast work done to kind of help uh, develop that, that type of, of learning practice, do you think there'll be any moves from universities to try and perhaps allow a greater number of enrolments, for example, and, and try to deliver more online classes as a way of generating more revenue um, and potentially having, having more people enrolled in a certain subject um, that are accessing learning via kind of, you know, online platforms such as Zoom and the like? Yeah, I wonder about this whole online learning thing because, I, I mean, in, in many ways it's, uh, it can be in the institution's interest over the student's interest mm. because it's cheaper to run. You know, you can, you can do it on a, on a, a kind of a mass scale. Um, and my, 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 at the moment, I haven't got any choice. Um, and this is part of this kind of, you know, um, kind of, you know, all these kind of accumulations of problems in the university sector and these national students are going to have to turn everything online. <laughs> um, they're suffering massive revenue problems. Um, but when it comes to the online learning, I, I'm not so sure that it is something that, as I said, that students are really going to warm to in such large numbers. I mean, even if you look at something like the international student market, for instance, I mean, they could avoid some courses online. But one of the attractions for international students, it's part of the kind of whole experience coming to Australia, coming to a different country, learning the language and so on, experiencing a different, uh, you know, a, a different place. And also for domestic students, I mean, that, that's part of the part of the attraction, I think, with, say, university. You know, there's the campus life, you know, there's, um, uh, which you just, you just don't get in the same way that you can with, with online learning. In terms of the CAPS, um, there are actually caps on the number of places, and it's a big problem because we're not sure what's going to happen with the class of 2020, um, uh, whether or not there's going to be this big push or big increase in the number of uh, year school leavers who are wanting to go into university because there are fewer options available to them. Mm. Um, and at the moment, there are caps on the, on the number of places that universities can offer, and that's part of the reason why this package has been introduced by the federal government and why they're trying to get it discussed so quickly <laughs> and move through the system so they can actually increase the numbers for next year uh, uh, so there are more places available for school leaders. That's really um, valuable perspective and as I said right at the top Peter just trying to spend a little bit more time having a look and understanding the detail of these announcements is, is what we're trying to do here and mm. I think you've um, really helped out this morning with oh, that. Thank Thanks you. heaps. No problem. Take care. Uh, you too. Um, yeah, it really means something when you say take care these days, it does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> Please do. Thanks, uh, Peter. Peter Hurley's with the Mitchell Institute and he's an education policy fellow over there um, with expertise in tertiary higher education. Uh, and uh, we've spoken to him a few times now. And, uh, yeah, you can find more out about his research on the Mitchell Institute website. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.